traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Tortoise. In the Senior Investigating Officer's Handbook, which is something of a policing bible, there's a chapter called The Investigative Mindset, and it sets out how the officer in charge should think as they arrive on the crime scene and begin their investigation. This is the person who decides everything about what happens next, which experts to call on, which tests to run. The way that they think in those first few minutes and hours really matters. And so in this chapter of the handbook, there's a simple guiding acronym, ABC. Assume nothing, believe nothing, check everything. But in this story, the one I'm about to tell you, the opposite happened. In the first crucial hours after a brutal killing in North London in 2016, a very particular story took hold. It was first assumed, then believed, and it went mostly unchecked. And it led to the conviction of two innocent men, two Polish men, who were sentenced to life for a murder that they could not have committed in a country they had just arrived in and where they didn't yet speak the language. And the real killer, he's still at large. I'm Basha Cummings and you're listening to the Slow Newscast from Tortoise. In this episode, the story of two men, Grzegorz and Patrick, and a remarkable miscarriage of justice. I think that they thought a big Pole attack because of the tattoos and that's it. That this must have been me. And that's it. It's August 2016. Grzegorz Schell has just arrived in London from northern Poland with his girlfriend, Magda. They've come to the UK because they need a fresh start. I was brought up by my granny, my mom's mom, because my parents were alcoholics. My father had been to prison as well. He had problems. From 13 years old, I was in various institutions, from emergency child care to children's home to juvenile detention center, and then finally prison. Grzegorz's life has been volatile. Back in Poland, he's been convicted of a series of crimes, robbery, possession of a firearm, a stabbing, among other things, and he's been in and out of jail for 13 years. That's what times were like. I had to help my granny to support the home, support the alcoholic parents as well. Like I said, things were not easy. When he and Magda arrive in London, they quickly find a single room to stay in and they land jobs too. Within a few days, Grzegorz is working in a car wash paid cash in hand and Magda is cooking in a Polish restaurant. They feel that this is the fresh start they both so badly need. 
Grzegorz is big. He weighs over 100 kilos, he lifts weights, he takes steroids, he's got a shaved head and tattoos, and if you passed him in the street, yeah, you'd think he looked pretty intimidating. But he's gentler than he first appears, and at 38, he sees himself as a bit of a father figure in his new community. People in Wood Green called us mother, father, because we also helped people out, the homeless, the Poles who had no jobs. So, because I know from my own life that there are various situations in life. And one person is in this situation, another in that situation. I know from my own experience that it's not easy when you have nothing to eat, when you have to fight. So it works out like that by itself. They don't know many people, but they settle in a bit of London known for its Polish community, in Haringey, North London. In fact, that year, the size of the Polish population in the UK was at its peak, at over a million. And on the next street, there's a guy that they know from back home called Patrick. He's also here for a fresh start, working to send home money for his young kids. And in that house on the next street, there's another Polish man too, living in the front room, a manual labourer. Grzegorz describes him as a good lad. He was a quiet, good lad, only work home. Sometimes he had a beer, as far as we knew him. Like I said, a very good lad. So one evening in August 2016, Grzegorz gets together with these other two friends. He walks from his place to theirs on the next street. It's late afternoon, they sit around drinking and smoking in the front room as the light through the big bay window begins to dim and night falls. And after a while, another Polish man turns up. He's also living nearby, but he's just broken up with his girlfriend and he's really crunched up about it. And for a while, it's all good. They're not close friends, these guys, but they get on. After all, they're all in the same boat. Four Polish men, they don't speak much English, all trying to make some money and make a fresh start. At around 8pm, Grzegorz wants to go home, but the heartbroken neighbour wants to come with him. He wants to keep drinking, he wants whiskey, and he wants to talk about his breakup. He was this loner. I saw him maybe three, maybe four times. Then I found out that he also lived in our street, above the Polish shop with his girlfriend. And, like I said, we met him in the park. Grzegorz obliges. He's happy to take this guy under his wing for a bit. They end up sitting in Grzegorz's garden for hours into the night, this new guy getting increasingly agitated. At around 4am, Grzegorz tells him, look, it's time to go home, we've got work in the morning. And so he walks his guest back to the house on the next street. As they arrive back, everything changes. And everything that comes next is the prosecution's version of events. The young man sharing the front room is attacked, the good lad. His head is slashed with a knife. Then his throat is cut. Bleeding heavily, close to death, he jumps onto the ledge of the bay window to escape his attackers, runs down a flight of stairs and down the road. He hides beside a car and then he makes it to an alleyway behind a house around 60 metres away. By the time someone opens the door, he's slumped, motionless, on the doorstep. The police are called at 4.45am and they fight to revive him. 
Around 30 minutes later, this young man, 28 years old, is pronounced dead. And the three other men, including our man Grzegorz, have disappeared. In the days and weeks after that night, Grzegorz returns to work. He doesn't get involved. He doesn't go to the police. Whatever he saw that night, he's keeping quiet. Like I said, you know, I had been inside in Poland. We have different rules there. We are taught not to get involved in these situations if they are nothing to do with you, especially not to go to the police. Meanwhile, a major Met Police investigation is underway, Operation Manaise. A senior investigating officer takes charge of the scene and he makes a very important assumption. He says the apartment is the crime scene. There's a lot of blood in there and it's where neighbours heard a commotion. Forensic experts are called and a pathologist examines the body at the mortuary. She concludes that death was due to a stab wound on the left side of the victim's neck a 14-centimetre incision that cut through his windpipe and one of the major arteries in the neck, the right common carotid artery. And all of this means that everyone who had been inside the flat that night, Grzegorz, his friend from back home, Patrick, and the third man, their recently heartbroken neighbour, they're all suspects. Yes, they flew into the shower cubicle, three of them. I was standing there naked. Quick, quick, you are being arrested, get dressed. Magda gave me my things. They didn't even let Magda come up to me and say goodbye, nothing. Only get dressed and we are taking you from home. And that's what they did. I told that I would be in for a little while and come out, that everything would get sorted out. I would stay inside for a month, three months, at the most, the way it is in Poland, and they would let me out. It's a clean story, isn't it? These are three Polish immigrants, all of them labourers. Two, Grzegorz and his friend Patrick, with pretty significant criminal histories back in Poland. And it wasn't just their histories. They didn't speak English. They had fled the scene. They'd lied in early police interviews. It didn't look good for them. You'd assume from looking at them and the way they'd behaved that they were guilty. Did you speak English at the time? No, not at all. And how many words were you able to say? Sorry, I am not speak English. That was it. When someone asked me something then, I understand a lot. Even then, at the beginning, I understood a lot. But I struggled to speak. I wanted to respond even in broken English, but I couldn't. I couldn't get the words out and it always was... Sorry, I am not speak English. At the trial, months after they were arrested, the same story is told again by the prosecution in court. That after a night sitting around drinking together, the scene had turned violent. And that any of the three men sitting in the dock, Grzegorz, Patrick and their heartbroken friend, could have done it. Except that wasn't what Grzegorz was saying. Instead, from the moment he was arrested for the murder, he was saying, I wasn't there. I couldn't have done it. 
No ja mu mówiłem, że I'm not guilty, this, is, this situation is some idiots kill someone. Trials are often about good stories. It's why a courtroom drama makes such a compelling Hollywood movie. And the prosecution story was a good one. Only it was the wrong one. But it was too late. More than a year after the murder, Grzegorz and his friend Patrick were sentenced to life in prison by a majority verdict. For the other man, their heartbroken acquaintance, the jury couldn't come to a verdict and he was released facing a retrial. Yeah, that's it. Gosh, that's not a very wide ledge at all, is it? For them to have come out of this window. And look how high it is. So the gap that he would have had to jump. Yeah. On a cold December afternoon, I went to the house in Woodgreen, North London, to see where the murder had taken place. And I'm with a woman called Louise Shorter, who has an encyclopedic knowledge of this case. If he'd have done all of that with his throat slashed, there would have been blood all over the place. It would have been absolutely spurting from him because he was effectively sort of drowning in his, in his blood at that stage. It would have been gushing from that wound, and it wasn't. We follow the steps of the young man who was killed, tracing the prosecution's story against the building and the street. After his throat was slashed in the apartment, the prosecution said that he had jumped onto a ledge, then over onto a set of stairs, then run down them and down the street, before collapsing some 60 metres away. I mean, for me, who's only new to this case, it just seems bananas. (laughs) Seeing it now, see, I mean, I, I understood when it was described to me that there was a bay window and some stairs, but seeing the gap that you would have had to jump and the, the kind of skill that you would have needed to land right and not fall down there, I mean, I don't know if you could have done it with a, with a, with a smaller wound, you know, with a whatever. I, it just seems like a... It seems like something that should have been a much more glaring question much sooner. But we're not here to reinvestigate the case. We're here to understand how a story took hold of this investigation and what it tells us about a very particular way in which the criminal justice system makes mistakes. When I was a teenager, I had two programmes that I absolutely loved. One of them was Top of the Pops, standard for my teenage years, and the other one was Rough Justice. It's Louise Shorter who brought this case to me. She contacted me through a friend to say these two Polish men were convicted of a crime they didn't commit. Are you interested? She'd taken the story to TV commissioners and newspaper editors, but she was turned down because she was told the public wouldn't care about two Polish guys. But I'm half Polish, I speak Polish, and so my immediate answer was, yeah, I'm interested. And when you hear this story, I think you will care. Louise has a fascinating background. She worked for many years on Rough Justice, a BBC TV series that investigated miscarriages of justice. The police claim to investigate crime with an open mind. But this is the story of how detectives closed their minds to all but one suspect. In doing so, they broke the rules designed to protect the innocent. There 
very often they would go on and they would get their convictions quashed. And I used to watch that when I was a teenager and just be absolutely just in awe of the work they'd done, thinking, how can you have something like a murder conviction where you've had a police investigation, you've had the had the Crown Prosecution Service, the courts, jury, all over it, deciding this person is guilty, and then a bunch of journalists come along and investigate it and say, all of that's wrong. And here's the real story of what happened. I, I just thought that was amazing, life-changing, brave and, you know, really fantastic work to do. And I, and I wanted to do it. It was a job that allowed her to lift the bonnet on the justice system in a way few people outside the law can. It was always the plight of the individual up against the, the system who was just on their own at that stage, trying to prove their innocence, that was the thing I kept getting drawn back to. The show was cancelled in 2007 after running for 27 years, but Louise decided to keep going, and so she set up a charity called Inside Justice, which does very similar work. And it's how she came to work on the case of Grzegorz and Patrick. I had an email quite late one evening. After the two men were convicted of murder in December 2017, one barrister who had defended Patrick knew that something had gone wrong. Well, once the conviction came in, I thought, we've got to do something. We've really got to get this conviction quashed. Siobhan Gray Casey is widely respected in the world of criminal law. And after the jury announced their verdict, she made a decision. I couldn't rest. And so I had to go out there and, and see if, you know, that, that I was right. She was going to appeal. She wanted to challenge the conviction. This email popped into my inbox and I saw it was from him and I read it and he said, a colleague of mine has just lost a trial. She wants to bring an appeal. Would you work with her on the case? And there was a woman's name, Siobhan Gray, and her phone number. And I just thought, I'm on the phone straight away. She was convinced that her client was innocent. He'd just been found guilty. She was determined to get an appeal, but she was under no illusion that it was going to be phenomenally hard. And she was saying, would you help? Would you Would you come on board with me on this case and help? And, and so I, you know, I took, I only needed to be asked once. <laughs> A vanishingly small number of murder convictions are granted appeals, and they're granted on very narrow grounds. That's the way the court system works on a principle of finality. A court case with a jury that leads to a conviction should be the final word. You can't say, hey, I don't agree with that conviction, I want to appeal. It doesn't work like that. You have to show the Court of Appeal that something went wrong in the first trial, that information was missing or hidden from one side, or that a new scientific test is now available that could throw the whole conviction into doubt. Only then might you be granted a hearing. To do that, to get there, you need an army of people willing to work to build an appeal. Experts and lawyers and investigators who are working mostly for free. And that's what Louise and her charity Inside Justice could offer if they decided to take it on. Was there a particular moment or detail that convinced you to take it on? I heard Siobhan talking about laying all of the crime scene photographs out and seeing all of this blood that wasn't inside the flat where everything was supposed to have happened. And it was the thing that Siobhan was absolutely fixated on. 
In this case, almost everything centred on the blood. If the prosecution's case was right, that the murder had happened inside the apartment, why was there so much more blood outside, in the street? And why wasn't that treated by the police as part of the crime scene? You know, how could that be? Why is this area outside of no interest to everybody else, to the police, to the prosecution? You know, why is nobody really thinking about this? Siobhan Gray knew that she had to unpick the prosecution's story, so she went back to the start. I always think it's very important when you, you're dealing with a murder case to look at the photographs and to go back to the scene, really. There's just no substitute for it. Working late nights, obsessive about rebuilding this case from scratch, Siobhan identifies two problems. The first is the blood. The second is how the third man in the apartment that night, who I'll call Mr X for legal reasons, how he presented himself in court. But let me start with the blood. To mount an appeal, Siobhan needed someone who could read the story in that blood. And I have to apologise in advance here, it does get a little graphic. For me, it was just putting the photographs on the floor. Must have been about 35 of them or something. And just thinking, why? it really was just, why have we got all that blood there? Nothing here and, and then a lot of blood in that alleyway. And it's not found in the alleyway, it's found around the corner. So what's happened? I had the same feeling standing outside that rundown house in North London. Is it possible for someone bleeding from the neck to scale, jump and run? And that's why I like working with Jo Millington, because Jo Millington takes a holistic view. She looks at everything and works out rather than just compartmentalising it from a scientific point of view. Jo Millington is a blood pattern analysis expert. Once you start asking, could there be another attack site, that changes the story entirely. Now, from a BPA perspective, of course, you're thinking, well, I was expecting to see lots of spurting, lots of arterial projected blood in the crime scene. And in the flat, there wasn't any. There wasn't any obvious projected blood. So that in itself was kind of a, 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 a signpost that perhaps that hadn't happened there. Would you expect somebody with that kind of injury to be able to walk onto a windowsill ledge jump across, run down some steps and walk or run down the road, perhaps hide by a car, given that there was um, blood there, and then 60 metres or so continue going. Is that is that possible? Well, you see, from a blood scientist perspective, you think to yourself, crikey, that sounds really impossible. And of course, that's when the pathologists need to come on board and say whether or not, you know, what the implications of that injury are on that individual Joe was saying the blood pattern inside the flat doesn't support that kind of injury. But Siobhan, the barrister, needed to test this theory on a pathologist, someone who examines bodies. And so she went to Professor Jack Crane. He's about as senior a pathologist as you can find, the state pathologist for Northern Ireland for 24 years, and he joins the case. It was quite, quite clear to me from a very early stage that this was not a straightforward case and that the initial interpretation uh, had been erroneous. If the attack didn't happen inside the flat where Grzegorz and Patrick were supposed to have jointly slashed the throat of the victim, then where did it happen? Then when he gets further along, we see a huge amount of blood um, outside uh, a house, um, some, I think, 60 metres or something 
from where the initial assault took place. He would have been just, in my view, incapable of then doing all this, this gymnastics to, to get out of the flat. I mean, it just did not seem possible. This wound was so severe, it would have been fatal within a, a, a matter of, of, of minutes, in my view. We came to the joint conclusion that the fatal injury had been sustained after he left the flat, in my opinion, close to the alleyway around the corner. Together, these new experts were realising that the reading of the crime scene, the blood evidence, had gone badly wrong. There was no new evidence. There was no new kind of analysis done, really. Everything that was available to come to that opinion was available from day one. And at the crime scene, a number of decisions were made that set that investigation on the wrong path. Assume nothing, believe nothing, check everything. It had been assumed from the very beginning that the attack had happened inside the flat. Therefore, the police believed that any of the men seen inside were the suspects. And no one was checking each other. The original pathologist who examined the body didn't visit the crime scene. It was an atomised investigation. And by the time it reached trial, there wasn't the time or the resources for Siobhan to engage the experts that she needed to challenge that forensic story. It was too late. I mean, we're probably all guilty of, you know, jumping to conclusions and coming early on in the investigation. But uh, even if you have those initial views, uh, what you should do is still retain the open mind and, you know, question yourself and, and question others. It, does this seem plausible? Is this is this right? And so forth. And, and I think, <laughs> uh, no disrespect to the police, but the, the police are very bad. The police make up their mind very early on. And I think often it's very difficult to get them to change their, their views. In light of this new forensic narrative of the crime, Siobhan went back to a piece of CCTV evidence that was used in the first trial. It shows Grzegorz and Patrick leaving the apartment moments after the attack and turning left, running down the street. Moments later, it shows the victim leaving, running and turning right. And then it shows a hint of a fourth man the heartbroken Mr X, also leaving, also turning right, following the victim. So as Patrick was always saying, this is one man, one knife, one killer. And when you see this wonderful CCTV and you see Patrick and, and Gregor running from the flat, in the first trial, that was, oh, look at them running after it was over. But of course, in reality, it was... They're running, and it's not over. They're running from something they don't want to be a part of, and the fatal wound was yet to happen. Could this prove that Grzegorz and Patrick really were innocent? We knew that from our evidence. But we have to pass the legal test. We have to, to get it back to the Court of Appeal, we've got to make sure that the, that the law is going to allow that. There's a term in the justice system. It's called expert shopping. If you want to challenge a conviction, you need to show something new. But you can't go back to the court and say, hey, look, I found some new experts who have a different view of the same evidence. And the difficulty there is that when you're talking about something like forensic evidence, you're dealing with opinion. 
And so at the time of the first trial, we've got experts saying, well, in my opinion, the fatal attack took place inside the flat. We've now got these three new experts who are saying, well, in my opinion, the the fatal attack took, took place outside. The legal process doesn't like it if opinion changes. And the reason it doesn't like it is because if opinion can change and therefore can go back to the Court of Appeal. You could have experts changing their opinion all the time. And so that would mean that the, that the legal process is not really finished. So the team had to find something else. But the problem is that in this case, it really mattered. In this case, it wasn't just a, an expert with a slightly different opinion. They were experts that absolutely, completely and utterly agreed, as did all other experts later on, that, that that was the right view, that the fatal throat slashing took place outside. But the Court of Appeal was really resistant to that. They decided to focus on the fourth man, Mr X. There was another man who had been in the flat. Grzegorz had described him to me. At some point he got, his eyes went all dark. He seemed absent or present somewhere else, as if he was not in my garden, but somewhere else in his thoughts. I don't know where. I could see it from the way he was. At the first trial, when all three of them were in the dock, Mr X had separated himself from the others. The jury couldn't come to a conclusion about him, so he was retried, and the second jury also didn't convict. He was a bit of a, a mystery figure, really, because he, the police hadn't turned anything up on him. He didn't appear to have any previous convictions. There were some hints at people in the community in that area thinking that he was a bit of a scary individual, somebody that they were quite fearful of, but nobody had really said anything, you know, really sort of solid, and certainly no evidence had been found. We had a really strong feeling that Mr X had a violent history. With the help of Louise's charity, the legal team decides to go to Poland to find out more about him. But they need help. A private investigator reached my colleague. In Warsaw, the Polish capital, a young journalist full of energy is trying to make his name at a news channel called TVN. His name is Patrick Szczepaniak. He's 26 years old. And after hearing from Siobhan via a contact of his, he decides to pursue the case as a reporter. I pack my suitcase and I fly to London for the, my, for the very first time in my life. Miscarriages of justice are a big deal in Poland at the time. A man called Tomasz Komenda, wrongly imprisoned for 25 years for the rape and murder of a 15-year-old girl, is in the headlines. A new book has just come out about the case. He went through hell. So basically, you know, when, when you see the video of the sentence of the court that as he's being released even the court you know like you can hear in the voice of a of a of a judge that he's shaking that this is something really you new know, like hope on everybody was talking about it. everybody was in you know, like feeling like a full compassion for this guy and so patrick thinks that maybe the same thing has happened again in this case i listened to his story i shook with his hand and i told him like listen i work on it i try to help you Patrick Szczepaniak begins investigating the fourth man, Mr X. Who is he? What's his background? In court, Mr X had presented himself as a quiet man, fearful of his co-defendants. His lawyers gave what's known as a good character defence, claiming that he'd had no run-ins with the law, unlike Szczegosz and Patrick, who had this long rap sheet between them. Back in Poland, we, uh, 
we did a background check of Grzegorz, uh, Charles and Patrick Pachecka and also Mr. X. Uh, we found all of those previous convictions of Patrick and, and Grzegorz, which were plentiful. <laughs> there was everything on, over there, like robbery, drugs, some sort of arms, beating, knives, everything, you know. And then... Surprisingly, we also found that Mr. X had also previous convictions. It was a piece of information that could shift the entire direction of the case, enough to build a proper appeal. It hadn't appeared in earlier searches because it was an old conviction, but it was pertinent. It involved violence. These two guys will go, will go for, to jail for you because they look and they seem to be the, the people who might have done it. And when we found a criminal record of uh, Mr. X in Poland, it was a sudden, sh sudden swift because, you know, the, the jury couldn't really objectively decide who was the guy, right? They didn't have the whole picture of him. So by adding that he had previous convictions, that was a big change. That was something which was lacking and maybe at that time the jury would have made a different decision, right? And did you know when you discovered that piece of information how significant it might prove to be? Did you know that that was something that you could base an appeal on, that that was something that could change the course of their lives? I knew. <laughs> I think the same day I told Siobhan that we found it, that we have it, and she was like, yes, yes, there is this piece of puzzle which was missing. And me, Nikki McCann Ramirez. Out every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. The case is granted an appeal, something which so rarely happens in murder convictions. It means that Grzegorz and Patrick and their legal teams can go back to court and argue that the new forensic reading transforms the case and so does this new information about Mr X. After hearing the evidence at the Court of Appeal in London, the judges rule that given Mr X's criminal record, which wasn't found sooner and therefore wasn't put before the original jury, the convictions are unsafe and must be quashed. It is an enormously important moment. It means a retrial. And for Grzegorz, that means hope. When the appeal was accepted, the hope started to grow again. 
I knew that 80% of cases are rejected by the Court of Appeal, even when people have good reasons. In 2021, they go back to court. And this time, it's a very different story. Completely different. There was no tense atmosphere like the first time. The judge listened carefully. I like it. He was focused on what people had to say. The jury as well. Has anyone accepted a level of responsibility in in the mistakes that were made? Well, I know that during the second trial, that all of the experts for the Crown, apart from one, accepted that actually they got things wrong at the first trial. So, I, you know, there was a complete 360 for them. They did sort of, you know, put their hands up and say, yes, we would do it differently now, and, and we got it wrong, that, which I think is, you know, very good, fantastic. I don't know what's happened in terms of making sure that it never happens again. This time the story has a different ending. The jury returns two not-guilty verdicts. After five years in prison for a crime that they have now been acquitted of, Grzegorz and Patrick are free. It's the failures in this case that make it so extraordinary. A very wise chief constable said to me some years ago, we police by consent in this country and most people do what they're supposed to do most of the time. And that works, and that's true. For most of us, that's just how, you know, that's how it works. So we don't have a police state. Most people are just happy going along with with how they think things should be. But if people lose confidence in the criminal justice system, if they start to doubt and worry that police investigations aren't getting the right people or that investigations when they've gone wrong aren't learning lessons, then that fundamentally undermines confidence in the criminal justice system. So that's why this matters. And it's why it matters now still, you know, not just for Patrick and Jegosh. It's bigger than them, actually. It's about making sure we have confidence in the system. None of these errors happened in a vacuum. And you don't have to look far to find people raising red flags about the way that forensic science is used by the police and the Crown Prosecution Service. But now we have to absolutely shout from the rafters, we are messing this up. You know, forensic science and in the UK is a broken, fragmented system. And if anybody wants to criticise me for saying that, bring it on, because we do, we do need to systemically change how we apply forensics in the UK. There's no doubt in my mind. Since the closure of the Home Office Forensic Science Service in 2011, the sector has become privatised, and that means that each force commissions its own forensic services. But with shrinking budgets, that means that each service, each scientist, each test costs a force money. And at the time of this murder, policing budgets had been shrinking for five years. And it explains why, for example, in this case, the pathologist didn't attend the crime scene to check that the interpretation of the scene matched her reading of the body and the injuries. Nobody, for for some inexplicable reason, said, do you know what, while I'm here, why don't you want me to go around the corner and have a little look at the blood where he collapsed? Or, you know, I might as well, I'm here already, so it's not going to cost you any more money if I pop around the corner. And it seems that nobody was nobody felt empowered to do that and if if that is genuinely the case then that is something that is significantly wrong with the system 
if I'm understanding you rightly, and just to be totally certain that I am, what you're saying is that the problems in how the crime scene was interpreted and read in Patrick and Grzegorz's case is is a symptom of a systemic issue rather than a unique problem in this case. Yes, in, in my opinion it is. Perhaps any of us should hope that we don't find ourselves in the wrong place at the wrong time. And the victim's family, they've been denied justice. Through all of this, they've remained quiet and they don't want to speak to reporters. So as far as we know, there were four men inside an apartment in London. One of them starts attacking another with a knife. Two of them, based on CCTV evidence and a blood spatter analysis, cannot have done it. They ran in a different direction. And instead what happens is a man, a victim, runs away from the attacker and the attacker then pursues him, which changes the whole nature of the murder. It doesn't seem like it's a kind of momentary rage. It's a it's a pursuit and this attack is carried out over the space of minutes and over you know the, a stretch of road. That person who committed that murder hasn't been brought to justice. No, he's still free. He's at large. Isn't that, isn't that terrifying? If the Metropolitan Police are doing anything less than actively pursuing his whereabouts, I would be really horrified by that. Since they were released a year ago, life hasn't been easy for Grzegorz and Patrick. Patrick immediately returned home to Poland, but his life has been volatile. We travelled to meet him, but in the end he didn't feel able to speak. He's angry about what happened to him. He's still lost in the enormity of it all. But he did send Louise and Inside Justice this note of thanks. For me, this, this guilty verdict was very difficult, you know. Because for me, it was like, like someone slapped me in the face, yeah? I didn't do nothing, yeah? It was a very difficult time. But thanks for you. Thank you, Miss Shibon Gray, Miss Jason Latte, yeah? Now I am free, yeah? This is amazing. I didn't expect that English people help me, because I'm Polish, you know? English people think that Polish people, you know, are like animals, yeah? But we are normal people. This is something amazing. I cannot describe what I feel is now, to be honest with you. My English is not, you know, it's not enough to say. I own you. I own everyone, yeah? You know, people really struggle when they've been wrongly convicted of being able to get their lives, you know, moving forward because, understandably, they are absolutely obsessed with what's happened to them. They become fixated on the detail of what a specific person said in a particular report or, you know, what some the way something had panned out. They're totally distrusting of any kind of authority. And so most people I know who have been wrongly convicted find it very, very hard to get their lives on track. And I think that certainly happened for Patrick. I think that's terribly sad. Um, Zegos, I think, has had a much easier time. And I have to say, it's the love of a good woman that's helped him here. As for Zegos, he's become a family man. When he was arrested for the murder, his partner Magda was just a few weeks pregnant. At 23 weeks, she gave birth prematurely and spent months in hospital with their daughter, Natalia, who's severely autistic. She believes that the stress of the case contributed to what happened. And Grzegorz, he missed it all. But when he was finally released, he made up for lost time. Apple of my eye, 
only that, that, that. Even the ladies at school, because I started to take her when I was not working. I dropped her off and picked her up, and the ladies at school noticed the difference. They said, Grzegorz, ever since you came back home, there is a change. 180 degrees. Natalia is different. You can see that she needed her dad at home. When I visited him at his home in East London, a new daughter, just three weeks old, was sleeping soundly in her crib. And at the end of our interview, with Louise sitting beside me, Grzegorz, this big, imposing man, with tears now streaming down his face, asked me to translate a message for her. He's saying in Polish that you saved his life. Oh. That's what he wanted to say to you. It was a very big team. But there are still many hurdles ahead. Grzegorz is free, but he's stuck and he's vulnerable. He doesn't have a passport and he's waiting to hear if he'll get settled status to remain in the UK. And he's hoping for compensation. A legal firm that he found online told him he might be entitled to millions, but now they aren't returning his calls. It has to be. Now with this compensation, you have to fight. I called recently they don't pick up. I left a message to call me back, but no, all quiet. I don't know what's happening. I'm waiting for the status as well. I think I should get it automatically, no problem. It was them who hurt me, not me them. No one apologized to me until this day. I got a letter by email and I had to ask for it. I only got a message by email to say I'm not guilty. And that's it. No sorry, nothing. But Louise knows how it works. And those millions, they're not coming Grzegorz's way. It is pretty much impossible for anybody to get it. So I can't see that Grzegorz will get compensation. You know, even if he did, he would get absolutely nowhere near the sum that he's talking about. But I think right now, as it stands, he won't get a penny. If he gets anything at all, it will work like this. The state will calculate what he would have earned if he wasn't in prison. From that, they'll deduct the cost of housing him in jail for five years, which is about £48,000 a year. If there's anything left over, he'll get it. Because you can see when we, when we met him, when we spoke to him, that he sees that as an endpoint, that he's holding out for that as, I guess, the sort of the closure that he's looking for, that mm. this terrible thing has happened to him. He's lost trust in the authorities. He's scared to leave his house in case something else goes wrong. And he's thinking, OK, but, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get... This is my apology from the state. I'm going to get this money. If he doesn't get that, what does he do? Oh, I have no idea. I have absolutely no idea. Works, lives on benefits. He won't get an, He won't get it. I don't think. And I don't. And I, it does do so much more, as you're saying, than just give money. All Grzegorz has is a PDF document. 
It says, this letter confirms that Grzegorz Schell was found not guilty of murder and was discharged. Please take this as confirmation of his acquittal. Signed, an officer of the court. That's all he has to rebuild his life. And Mr X is still at large. But given the double jeopardy rule, it's unlikely that he would be tried again unless significant new evidence was to emerge. People I've spoken to are convinced that he's back together with his girlfriend, who still lives just a few metres away from where the murder happened. They've heard that he's somewhere outside London and that they still see each other. The Met Police told me that any new information about the murder would be reviewed and they admitted that the investigation has been referred to the Serious Case Review Group. It's also being reviewed by the Forensic Science Regulator, an acknowledgement that things went gravely wrong in this case. Neither would say, though, when they would publish their reports. But as Grzegorz knows, the law moves slowly when it's wrong. This episode was written and reported by me, Basha Cummings. The producer was Gary Marshall, with support from Louise Shorter at Inside Justice. The sound design is by Tom Birchall, and mixing is by Matt Russell. The editor was Kerry Thomas. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Slow Newscast. If you like what we do and enjoy our podcast, then please do leave us a review or follow us. And to access more of our journalism and invites to exclusive events, join Tortoise as a member. Visit tortoisemedia.com forward slash friend and use the code SLOW60 for a special offer today. Tortoise. And me, Nikki McCann Ramirez. Out every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts.